Despite centuries in bondage and decades of Jim Crow, the descendants of slaves in America have yet to receive a formal apology or restitution. In recent years, H.R. 40, championed by then-Congressman John Conyers and current Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, has gained traction in Congress to study and develop viable proposals for reparations in connection to slavery in America. But what exactly is reparations? And where did this idea come from? Is it really as simple as 40 acres in a mule? Let's discuss. Welcome to The Faithful Citizen. I'm Reverend Leah Daughtry, and today we're talking about reparations. Our guest today is Dr. Iva Carruthers, one of my favorite people. She is General Secretary of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, an interdenominational organization within the African-American faith tradition. We're focused on justice and equity issues, and I am pleased to share as co-chair of the board with Dr. Freddie Haynes. It is uh, a UN non-governmental organization as well as a 501c3. She is a founding CEO and trustee of the Proctor Conference, and she has steered the organization in a unique and influential and esteemed network of faith-based advocates and activists, clergy and laity. She is the one-time uh, Professor Emeritus and former chairperson of the Sociology Department at Northeastern Illinois University and founding president of Nexus Unlimited. Most important for our conversation today, she is a member of the National African American Reparations Commission and is working on initiatives related to the UN decade of people of African descent. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Iva Carruthers. I call her Mama Iva. Hi, Mama Iva. How are you? Hello, Bishop Leah, my love, my daughter, uh, my boss. (laughs) (laughs) I am not the boss. Mama Iva is the boss. (laughs) We are so delighted to have you with us today to unpack this issue of reparations. And we know in our communities, particularly in the African activist community, we've been talking about reparations for many, many, many years. Tell us, Mama Iva, what is reparations? Thank you for this opportunity to share uh, my experiences, my ideas, and to uh, engage in a conversation with you. Uh, I hope that the listening and viewing audience will come away more informed and indeed inspired to be active in this reparations movement now, as we say. So reparations is a process. It is a process of repairing the damage that has been done, the injury, the harm that is done through the acts of dehumanization of one group over another group. In the context in which we are saying reparations now, it is really a process of addressing the inter-transgenerational damage and harm that has been the result of the transatlantic slave trade system. 
a system of 400 years of protracted dehumanization of people of African descent in which our humanity was not honored, our labor was exploited and made to be given uh, freely, our families were dispersed, destroyed, our culture was assaulted, and Consequently, even though there was, quote, unquote, the Emancipation Proclamation, and we just finished the celebration of Juneteenth, the reality is, is that there was no 40 acres and a mule, that in fact, it was the white masters who had owned us as enslaved chattel who were given reparations for, quote, the loss of their property. And so reparations is the process by which we engage in remedies to address the increasing gaps in wealth, the gaps in educational opportunity, the gaps in our ability to have health, healthy and full lives um, that are a result of systems of injustice that has been protracted over centuries and indeed decades. So did you just say because I don't want us to skip over that part. I think I heard you say that when slavery ended, slave masters were given reparations by the government for the loss of their property, AKA the enslaved. Is that what you said? That is what I said. And so unlike any other slave system that we might've heard about um, historically, or even the context of biblical notions of enslavement, the chattel slave system, that was born, bred, and um, magnified as a transatlantic, meaning a global system of European power, of European efforts to institutionalize their power um, through the exploitation of our labor, our lives, and our future generations, because of course our women were so uh, completely violated. Um, we were considered, quote, chattel. We were considered property. We were commodified. And all of that was even um, given insurance value so that we were considered property that had a value that therefore, if that property was lost, persons could be compensated. And so unlike the mythology that Emancipation Proclamation yielded us our 40 acres and a mule, the reality is, is that the former white slave owners received reparations for the loss of their property. So that's an interesting idea because what it sparks for me is when we talk today about the wealth gap uh, between black Americans and white Americans, the fact one could make the case that part of the wealth gap is that, uh, you know, long ago generations of white folks who are the descendants of uh, slave owners received, uh, have been able to build their wealth based on the reparations that they received for the loss of their property. Absolutely. So there are a couple of things that we should think about as we um, begin to understand this very complex issue. So if we were to understand that the whole notion of reparations in terms of a demand on a government to give compensation for the harm done is a process by which a government takes public dollars and decides to allocate and distribute those dollars in the context of apology, of atonement, of, of, of making amends, of restoring, of repairing the harm. 
And in doing that, it is a redistribution of tax dollars that can either go to an individual or can go for communal or community well-being. So when we think about reparations, we need to think about it as an opportunity for the harm to be remedied through the reallocation of tax dollars, okay? Those dollars being distributed to individuals or communities or a class of people. In some ways, we know that giving subsidies to farmers is a form of reparations, even though in the midst of all of this well-being and wealth, we have poor people who cannot feed themselves. Farmers are paid subsidies from the public fund in order not to plant food. <clears throat> that is no different than an argument and a demand to use those public funds to make amends for harm done by the government and the church, which was and is complicit in the systemic racism that has gone on for generations. So I'm gonna get to the church in a moment, but I think it's important to acknowledge, I'm gonna ask you to speak a minute about reparations is not a new concept. And while we're talking today and much of what you've referenced today has been reparations for the African-American community as a result of the chattel slavery system, isn't it true that the United States government paid reparations to our Japanese brothers and sisters after uh, their experience with the internment camps? Yes. And also post-Holocaust, our Jewish brothers and sisters received reparations from around the world for the harm that had been caused to them as a result of the Holocaust. Is that, is that right? Do I have that, my that is absolutely correct. And so particularly post-Holocaust, there was international conversation and resolutions and protocols put in place that suggested that any crime against humanity had no term limitation. And therefore you could make a claim for reparations in relationship to those crimes. Thus, the United States refused to participate in the Durban meeting on racism because they knew that on that agenda, there were people of African descent all over the world who had made it their priority to declare the enslavement of people of African descent as a crime against humanity. And the law essentially says, once that is done, you must find remedy. You must pay reparations. So I think that's important for our, for our listeners and those who are in this conversation with us to understand that there is precedent yes. uh, that has really zero to do with race, ethnicity, anything. It's about the harm that has been caused and how you make amends to the people who have been harmed, whether it was our Japanese brothers and sisters who were in the internment camps in California uh, during the war and our Jewish brothers and sisters. And in both cases, they were rightly paid uh, and rightly compensated for the harm that had been caused to them because of man's inhumanity to man. So it seems, so then what's the challenge, Mama Iva? If this has precedent, and if this has been done before, and reparations have been paid to other communities, why is it that when you talk about the African-American community, the descendants of slaves, 
why is it a challenge uh, to to get to have reparations paid? Well, I, I think it's it's complex and multi-layered. One, let's assume that it's a challenge um, at a psychological level because there are those who have been the beneficiaries of enrichment as a result of the enslavement who feel a level of unconscious and conscious guilt. And as a result of that, for them, it is better to be in a stage of denial than to address. It seems to us from where we sit, the basic dehumanization that black people have built the case for, that we know we have experienced, that we can factually identify and show as exhibit A, B, C, all the way through Z and go to another second alphabet, it is sufficient enough to suggest that at least you can say, I apologize, but they don't even want to apologize. And so there's something in the psychic, there's something in the spirit and the heart and an understanding of a God that I not know and you not know that says to them, they do not owe us an apology. They do not owe us reparations. And for them to give that is to weaken their position and their power and authority over the way in which the world is organized. The system of racism was organized on a principle of what we call a hierarchy of human value, that some people had more value than others. Some people were more disposable than others. And as a result of that, it gives a group of people advantage and claim over decision-making authority and the resources of the world. And so from our hamlets in Chicago to the mineral resources of a continent of Africa, we see that African commodification results in a beneficial gain for non-African people. And the resistance to reparations proportionate to the crime or the harm that has been done is overwhelming for people to address. And I would say that it's important for us to understand that sometimes it's overwhelming for us to even feel like we're worthy of it. And that too is a problem because the harm includes the harm that has been done to us psychologically and spiritually that says we are not worthy or we are not enough or that we are not God's child. So that sounds like uh, there's a lot of spiritual work that needs to be done on all sides. And that's as people of faith, as people of values who are value centered, God centered, um, you know, it, there's this, this notion, and you mentioned earlier about the, the complicity of the church. Yes. Uh, and part of the challenge then with reparations is around their denial of their God, of other creations, other of God's creations, humanity, which is since you're saying that what God has created is not equal and that in and of itself is a sin, it would seem to me. Absolutely. And, and so talk more about the church's complicity and how yeah. religious institutions have been in, in complicit with this. And what are we seeing? Are you seeing different? Are you seeing change? Are you seeing movement or is it more of the same? So when we look at the history, when we build the case, we can see the ways in which the church was complicit in terms of the prayers that were given, the baptisms that condoned it, that dignified it with God's notions of the curse of Ham, us being inferior, 
that affirmed the fact that there was no difference between church and state because the edicts of the popes were very clear and intentional about go out and enslave and capture and humanize and civilize these people, these indigenous people, these black people, and that that is God's will. They talked about it in terms of manifest destiny. They talked about it in terms of their hierarchy and they being white were given by God the right to control. So if you go and look at that in the ways in which the church actually participated, we're now uncovering where seminaries, uh, Princeton Seminary just gave $27 million set aside for reparations for black students because of the ways in which the Presbyterian church in that seminary had in fact enslaved and benefited from enslavement. And so the, the, the individuals of the church and the church as a institution own slave, own slave uh, making commodities, et cetera, et cetera. So we know that there must be a healing, a spiritual healing and a purging and an atonement of the church. We had slave ships named after Mary and Martha. We had uh, catechisms given. Uh, what we know as people of African descent is that the prayers that were given at the top of the ship were not the same prayers that were offered at the bottom of the ship. And no more than the prayers given on Black Lives Matter uh, Square um, were the same prayers that were given on January 6th in the U.S. Congress. And so there were different gods, right? And so now we fast forward to a moment where the reckoning and even a conversation about reconciliation cannot happen until there is truth telling. And that truth telling has to do with and begins with the role of the church and its complicity in the consequences, not just for the slave trade, but the consequences that continue up and including new Jim Crow, mass incarceration, the commodification, the killing of black people on the street, children, women, men, without punity. So when I was in, that's, that's really interesting, Mauna Iva. I was in Peru um, several years ago because I wanted to go to Machu Picchu. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, one of the things I do when I travel is I love to go into churches and cathedrals and just to see how people worship there. And so we were in Lima which is the major city and huge cathedrals decorated with the gold and all of that. And it struck me um, as I was listening to the tour guide and then reflected on some of my seminary training, how uh, in the early days of the slave trade in South America, and it was mostly in the, in the Catholic uh, folks were there proselytizing. Part of their doctrine was that once you baptize the indigenous people, then they can no longer be slaves because they are now your brothers and sisters in the faith. And so you must free them. Uh, but how the church changed their doctrine to eliminate that uh, clause so that the slave owners did not have to release the slaves once they were baptized because they could not see their way clear 
to letting go of their workforce, of their free labor. So it became an economic issue. And so the church backed away from its teachings in order to allow uh, these, these slave owners to continue to hold people as property. And the, the juxtaposition of that was just mind-blowing for me as I'm standing in this golden, gilded cathedral uh, built by slaves and to know that the church completely changed its doctrine in order to further the economics of the country. And we certainly, we never had that in America where they freed the slaves after they were baptized, but it was the same sort of economic thing that the church was complicit in. How do we repair that now? Particularly well, what you're saying about the mm-hmm. prayers, you know, on George Floyd Square are very different from the prayers of the January 6th. Right. It, can it be repaired? Well, the work we do, we, we, we name it sacred memory work. Um, we do it because we have faith and a hope that it can be repaired, um, that we believe in a God, a God of righteousness and a God of justice and that you cannot separate those two things. And I think you have put your finger on the pulse of the difference between an African worldview and a European worldview. And so what you have just described was a church that was willing to redefine its beliefs or its alleged creeds by saying you can separate out the spirit from the body. And it is this separation theology that allows you to say one thing at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and then go participate in a lynching party at 3 p.m. in the afternoon because you make these distinctions between these fine lines of differences that begins to allows you to compartmentalize that what you believe in your head which is against that what you do with your body, your feet, and your hands. On the other hand, from an African point of view, you cannot separate those things. I am because you are. What I believe is only a belief if it is shown by my behavior. My actions are the breath of God is a function of an action that shows the divinity within. And so When we look then at how the world is operating on a principle that allows for this commodification, this separation, et cetera, we see that down to the economic systems that you have just identified, we now have extraction economies, so to speak, where we're actually going to get to zero wealth in some of these nations like in the Caribbean because they just keep taking the natural mineral resources until they're depleted. That's what the fights are about on native lands right now. Let us go take their natural resources and deplete them as opposed to understanding that God fundamentally gave us all that we need. We need to be good stewards of that which God has given us. Mm -hmm. And so the healing that must be done is a theological healing as well as a institutional and physical healing from all the damage that it's done. So when we talk about reparations and repairing the damage and compensating those who have been uh, victims of, of the system, what are we talking about? Are we talking about 
checks? Are we talking about 40 acres in the mule? Are we talking about uh, communal? What are we talking? And, you know, I, I, I'm asking for the audience, but I'm asking for myself. Uh, my great, my fourth great grandmother was born in 1789 in what would become Savannah, Georgia. And mm -hmm. so I have four generations who lived on Georgia plantations, on the Daughtry plantation before uh, we were uh, emancipated. So I got, you know, centuries, <laughs> a, a couple of centuries, at least a century and a half of people who were labored without compensation. So I kind of want to check. I, I'm, I'm good with 40 acres too. <laughs> but what are we really talking about when we talk about reparations? So when we talk about reparations, there are a couple of assumptions that I make that I say regardless of what table I'm at. And the first thing I say is that reparations can never be reduced to a monetary transaction because there is not enough money in the world to pay us for the blood, the tears, the travail, the trauma, and the pain that our people, our foreparents have experienced. Having said that, though, there needs to be a reckoning which begins with a truth-telling process of acknowledgement and a process of confession and contrition that gets us to the point of having common sense conversations about remedy. Those remedies which deal with reparations can be in the form of individual payments, for example, individual acts that speak to the healing and, of course, always a commitment of non-repeat that we will not do this again. But it can also be in the form of communal or community uh, reparations that benefits the whole of the community. So let me give uh, two examples that I think I'll give an, a concrete example of today that models what's being talked about at a theological level, say at the World Council of Churches. At the World Council of Churches, this notion of reparations is being talked about by using Zacchaeus tax story and narrative to say that he became one who was a believer that acknowledged his exploitation through taxation. And as a result of going through a process of contrition, he came to the conclusion that he should not just give back that which he had taken, but he should give it back fourfold, right? Multiple times over and over again. And a promise that he would not do it because he was going to be a believer and he would live out his life in the act of justice and righteousness. This notion of looking at the wealth gap in America right now, we know from economist modeling that we can leverage a mere 2%, no more than a 10% tax on the most wealthiest of people in this country and certainly in the world. And we can generate enough funds to pay reparations to make for some of the reversal of the damage. Now what Evanston, Illinois has done and made history as the first municipality in this country was really a model of what we call the Zacchaeus tax model. It essentially said that you can take natural resources, which generate all funds, you can apply the benefits of those natural resources to a process of fair taxation, 
And you can then distribute or redistribute those tax dollars to make for reparations. What Evanston said was, we now are going to be beneficiaries of monies from cannabis sales. Those tax dollars from cannabis sales will go into a fund that will be designated as a reparations fund that we will then distribute to people of African descent in Evanston who have either individually will be given vouchers or the equivalent of a $25,000 um, transaction towards closing the gap around housing because there was such clear evidence of exploitation, discrimination around housing and redlining and not having access to federal dollars for housing and or communal distribution of those funds. So they have actually set aside a $10 million fund now in order to do reparations. One of the first um, cities in the nation to come up with a real model of remedy. So there are many ways that that can be addressed. We're looking at, for example, Princeton Seminary, who is making tuition-free reparations for people of African descent. It is about having a heart of willingness for transformation and understanding that this cannot be done as a process of political expediency, but rather with intent to transform a system and to move us to a higher expression of what it means to be human in relationship to the harm that has been done and how we see one another going forward. I hope that helps. Mm -hmm. And I think that a key part of that um, is is the acknowledgement and the apology, right? Absolutely. I was uh, when I was prepping for this, I saw that when the uh, the Japanese who were uh, put into internment camps under President Roosevelt, um, baseless claims that they were somehow spying on America. They campaigned for reparations, and they, and which they should have, and they received them when Ronald Reagan signed the law. And part of the law was an apology. Yes, an apology, and of course there was a cash payment to them. I think twenty thousand dollars per survivor. Uh, but you know, part I think the the even more than the money was the apology, was right. the acknowledgement that the nation messed up, right. uh, damaged folks irreparably. It could not be undone. And so we have to acknowledge our mistake before we can move forward. And, and truth telling is the, is the first part of that. And so one of the things we have an obligation, for example, is to make sure our children know that Martin Luther King said more than I have a dream. He also said this country ought to pay reparations for the unpaid work Mm -hmm. of people of African descent. Mm -hmm. There's a, a wonderful sign that hangs in the National Museum of the American Indian mm -hmm. that talks about how they survived all of the trauma that this nation inflicted on them. And the last line of it says, we are the evidence of those who have died and that makes us responsible for remembering everything, Absolutely. including the things we did not know. Exactly. And I think that so beautifully speaks to our responsibility to make sure that our children understand and the next generation. And, and is that not what Deuteronomy teaches us, that we must tell the story to our children and our yes. children's children and to remember? Because we have been dismembered in the process. The mm -hmm. anecdote for being dismembered and the trauma 
is to really, it begins with remembrance and truth, right? And so that's what we are obligated to do as faith leaders. And so um, the Samuel Dewey Proctor Conference has embraced this responsibility to facilitate sacred memory projects. We have been to Elaine, Arkansas, where we now are looking at mass graves being found. It's been a part of the, the, the narrative of the oral history of the people that there are mass graves buried there. We have those projects going on around the country where we are discovering the horrific harm that has been done and confronting that history in order for this nation to move forward. But we're at a very um, precarious point in this history of this nation and it is up to us to make sure the nation tips towards justice mm-hmm. and not backwards towards injustice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, there's been some important legislation that's been moving um, recently with the support of Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee uh, and before her, uh, Congressman John Conyers, when I was working on Capitol Hill, every single year he would introduce uh, legislation uh, advancing reparations. Tell us now what's happening with the legislation. There's a lot of bubbling, but those of us who pay attention to this, there's tension around the legislation and whether it goes far enough. So tell us what we need to know about this legislation. Sure. Well, one thing we need to know is I I need to invoke the spirit and the memory of Callie House, who is the mother of the reparations movement in this country, who founded an organization with clergymen um, for reparations in 1896. So we're going to invoke the spirit of Callie House. And then we fast forward to Queen Mother Moore, who was in her backyard, right? And we can fast forward to now Sheila Jackson Lee. But before Sheila Jackson Lee was passed the mantle by John Conyers, Um, In 1989, he introduced the reparations H.R. 40 bill, which was a um, a resolution to study the consequences of the transatlantic slave trade. Well, that bill has languished up until a few months ago. It finally came out of committee. And we now think we are prepared to have a successful vote to pass H.R. 40. That has grown, though, to be beyond studying the consequences of the slave trade, but to actually talk about remedies for the slave trade in terms of reparations. Now, at the same time um, that Sheila Jackson Lee has been moving that bill, there have been other bills which have uh, surfaced, which are about truth telling. Um, and getting support for truth telling, but all of that energy is coming to a crescendo around a new point in this history of a reparations process that has been held in in the belly and the hearts of black people generation after generation after generation where we now find that there are cities across the, um, the, the nation and in fact states, states such as California and Virginia who are looking at statewide reparations programs. And so at the very local level, at the state level, and certainly at the national level, we all need to get in touch with our public officials and let them know that we support these bills which represent specific remedies to address the damage that has been done. But I do want to caution us to make sure we understand the difference between reparations for past harm and public policy, which you ought to do anyway. 
And so we all remember how the lottery with such excitement we thought was going to generate all of this new money for education. And what happened is the new money was given to education, but then they stopped giving the old money that they gave. And so it was, you know, it was replacement money. It was right. So we cannot allow for reparations conversations and remedies to be reduced to what you ought to do anyway, or you were going to do in terms of your ongoing public policy. That is, that is, that's a really good point. It, the, the other thing I think about sometimes, Mama Iva, is we're talking about uh, apologies, remedies, and all of that, and the and the money that the government would take to fund any of this. And the fact of the matter is, the ironic part of it is that African Americans are have are you're talking about spending money that we contribute via our own taxes. So you're basically giving me, giving me back my own money. Absolutely. And you're giving our money to other people all the time. When you're saving the banks, when you're doing health care. I mean, all of that is about taking the tax fund and deciding where it will go. And the issue is who gets to decide and who do they think is worthy to be the beneficiaries of it. So how do you respond to people, uh, some black people, uh, who say, um, well, we already get reparations in the form of what you now term public policy, or, you know, we already get, you know, reparations because in financial aid or financial assistance or mortgage assistance, what do you, how do you respond to that? What's a, what, what way should we use to, to counter those arguments? Well, we should take a deep breath and we should um, understand this becomes an educable moment. And we um, lift up the notion of uh, uh, maybe a race. And so when you look at this wealth gap and you understand that the, the wealth gap is increasing instead of decreasing, when you get an equal amount of money that someone else would get as well, you continue to be behind if you started from behind. And so you will forever be behind if you don't have a remedy that closes that gap that puts you on an equal footing in order to compete competitively. And so until and unless those things that we get are not considered to be compensatory in order to satisfy us, as opposed to reparatory in order to make up for what harm has been done, then it does not qualify as reparations. And so it is not about getting a handout um, if you feel it's about giving a handout, then get it and give it to someone else. Give it to your favorite charity. Give it in a way that makes a difference for the individual and the communities who have been most harmed. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point about the catching up. Years ago, I worked in a, an office with uh, a, a white colleague, and when she got married, her parents g gave her the down payment for her house. Right. Because that was their custom. That was their tradition. They weren't wealthy people, but they had enough money that they had been able to save. 
right. uh, fund so that when all of their children got married, they gave them the down payment to buy a house. So in her first year of marriage, she and her new husband moved into a brand new home funded by the down payment that her parents, and I just look, I'd never heard her tell us such a thing because that <laughs> doesn't happen in, in black. I was like, what you mean? We have to save our own down payments because we don't have this transfer of wealth. Because um, we were denied loans and mortgages. Like when my father came back from World War II as a Tuskegee Airman, denied loans and mortgages to get a house, to be able to sell that house and pass on the monies from the sale to the next generation. So now we have in this moment of regentrification, these children who have had the beneficial gain from two and three generations of their parents buying and selling houses which is where the assets are for wealth, not a job. It doesn't come from a job that you go to every day and when you miss a job, you don't get paid. Mm -hmm. It comes from assets. And the wealth gap that is where it is now at the current rate of the ways in which we see the disparate income and wealth between blacks and whites in this country in the next 15 years, African-Americans are projected to have zero wealth. In other words, we're going backwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. This has been a fantastic conversation. I think uh, I'm going to give you the last word. Some of the key takeaways for me are around this being about uh, repairing the harm repairing the harm that has been done. This is not about uh, advancing as much as bringing us to close gaps, uh, gaps that would not have existed right. except for the effects of, of slavery, but also the spiritual work that has to be done uh, in, in, the large, in the white community and in the black community around uh, how we value each other, uh, how we make what we say match with what we do. Uh, in church, we call it internal attitudes, which uh, reveal themselves in external exercises. Right. So how how that spiritual work needs to happen, and how our religious institutions, not just the church, the church, the the synagogue, the masjid, have all been all the major religions have been complicit uh, in 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 the harm that has been done, and all have work that we must do. Mama Ivor, tell us if, if for people who want to be involved, who want to know more, uh, who want to be in touch with their officials, what can they do? What can our listeners do today to help learn more or do, do something about the cause for reparation? Well, they can certainly come to the website of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference. They can Facebook us. They can tweet, tweet, tweet us uh, at Proctor Conference and you will see resources there and links that will give you templates and letters that you can write uh, your elected officials. Um, we are also in partnership with the McCormick Theological Seminary where we're establishing a center for reparations for the faith community that will be a go-to a, a go place to help congregations and faith leaders to do this sacred memory work. But at your kitchen table, you can express the kind of gratitude of those of your family members who you know you stand on their shoulders and remember to tell their stories so that our children won't lose the capacity to dream, 
the capacity to have vision beyond their immediate selves and to be able to connect to this work that we must do to create a different kind of world. We cannot survive living through devices and on devices and ignoring those who are around us with such need for the affirmation of their humanity. And so we cannot become the vessels of a new kind of enslavement system because we are ignoring those who have been most marginalized and hurt and traumatized by the systemic nature of racism in our world. Everybody who lives in this country and who breathes, breathes racism. I don't call it white supremacy, white domination, but not white supremacy. Well, thank you, Dr. Iva Carruthers, General Secretary of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, historian, sage, elder, mother of wisdom. We thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. I feel enlightened, inspired, and informed, and I hope you do too. Thank you thank so much, you. Mama Iva. I love wonderful. you. Thank you for your leadership and all you do because you work at the intersection of what it means to be God's servant. And we love you and we thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Love you. Love you too. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to follow us on social media at The Faithful Citizen on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And head over to our website, www.thefaithfulcitizen.org to sign up for updates catch up on past episodes, and be among the first to know about new episodes. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Blessings to you.